Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Home Recording Made Easy.com podcast. I'm your host, David Vignola. And this time out, I'm going to give you five mixing mistakes that you want to try to avoid. Now, I've done some episodes like this in the past, but I got some more, some things I never told you about before. Five new mixing mistakes that I hear in a lot of my students' mixes, especially beginners, and I want to help you avoid these mixing mistakes. So sit back, relax, get yourself a pen, take some notes. Let's talk about some uncommon mixing mistakes that you may be doing in every single mix and not even realize it. And we want you to avoid those to get better mixes. So let's talk about it right here on the Home Recording Made Easy.com podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Home Recording Made Easy.com podcast. I am your humble host, David Vignola, and thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Take some time out of your busy schedule to join Uncle Dave here. This is episode number 33, and as I said in the intro, we're going to talk about five mixing mistakes that I see quite often with my students and listening to their mixes. And I want to try to help you avoid some of these mistakes. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. But before we get to that, as I said, this is episode number 33. And recently, I've been asking for my listeners, your, my supporters, what are your future show ideas, topics you want me to cover on this podcast? A lot of you have written in, and that's great. I'm going to be using some of those things in the very near future, some of those ideas that are coming from you. But I'm here to try to tailor this podcast to help you. So if you have any show ideas, topics you want me to cover, things that you think might make a good podcast episode, be sure to email me at info at homerecordingmadeeasy.com and let me know what you think. And I'd love to be able to use some of your ideas. So that helps me out and it helps me help you. So that's great. So also stick around to the end of the episode because I want to give you guys a couple of free gifts for taking your time to just listen. Um, and make sure, again, you like, subscribe, share, give me the thumbs up, leave comments below if you're listening to this on YouTube. And uh, leave me five-star reviews, regardless of where you're listening to this podcast. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Now, let's move on. Five mixing mistakes to avoid. Let's talk about them. So, mistake number one that I see all the time. I talk about it a lot, but I see it happen a lot, and it's a hard thing for us to, to avoid. But that is using too many plugins in our mixing session. Yes, 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 yes. We talk a lot about plugins. And I see a lot of times when I see sessions that are sent to me, sometimes I'll have students send me their mix and then I'll say, hey, you know, open up your session. Let me let me take a look at your session of what you got going on there. Or if people are uh, booking um, a one-on-one -on -one Skype or Zoom session with me, I do a lot of this training too, by the way, if you're interested in hiring me for an hour to help you with your personal needs in your home studio, um, I do a lot of this kind of training and we're looking at my student sessions and we open up the session and there is an enormous amount of plugins in the session. There's EQs and compressors and tracks with stacking compressors and two and three compressors on a certain track and multi-band compression and all this crazy stuff and they can't understand why the mix doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know, using too many plugins, we all get caught up in the plugins and we all love plugins. I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm on YouTube every week showing you guys new plugins. So I'm not here to tell you don't use plugins. I'm telling you in a session, you have many plugins you can use and you want to try to limit yourself and use plugins with a purpose. 
Okay, now keep in mind that the, the two most important plugins or the two most important tools you have as a mixer, and we've talked about this before, is EQ and compression, right? So all your tracks are going to have EQ and compression to some degree, or at least most of them should, right? And so I understand that. But beyond that, less is more, okay? Using, you know, I, I see people that, that'll take a track and will put three, four compressors on, on one track. You know, they, they heard this term, we're going we're gonna to compress in series. And, you know, they hear a big fancy name and we're going to put, you know, the 1176 compressor. Then we're going to follow it up by an LA3A. And then we're going to put it a Fairchild after that. And then we're going to multiband compress it. We're going to do all this stuff because they saw some engineer do this on YouTube in one specific instance. And they think by adding more plugins and adding all these, you know, fancy things or, or you know, crazy workflows, that it's going to help your mix sound better. And the fact of the matter is it really isn't. If you know how to use EQ and compression effectively, and I'm talking about a stock compressor, stock plugin, stock EQ, that's 75% of the battle. It really, really is. I mean, I got courses that are dedicated to this topic. Okay. So using too many plugins, what I would tell you to do is when you're going to be mixing, you're talking about EQ and compression. Anything above and beyond that is icing on the cake. You need to get good at learning how to use EQ and compression first before you just keep throwing tons of plugins. Now, that doesn't mean when, when I say too many plugins, let's say you're using a channel strip. Let's say you're using, I'm just going to use an example here, um, an SSL channel strip because you're going to do an SSL kind of a mix and you want that vibe. And you're going to put that channel strip on every track in your session. And if your session has 24 tracks and you're going to have 40, 20, excuse me, 24 channel strips in there. Okay, that's a lot of plugins, but I don't I don't mean that. That's one plugin that you're using on every single channel to achieve your EQ, your compression, um, and maybe some of your gating and, and those kinds of things. That's different. I don't mean that. I mean what I alluded to a few seconds ago, where you have, again, let's just take a vocal, for example, and you've EQ'd it, and you've compressed it, and then you put a saturator on it, and then they put a multiband compression on it, and then they put a second EQ on it. Then they put three reverbs and a delay, and they have 17 plugins on one track trying to make something that was either A, not recorded very well to begin with, um, or in trying to make it sit better in the track. And because they don't have the basic fundamentals of mixing down, they just keep throwing these extra tools at it to try to make things sound better and it make things sound worse. If you're one of these people, and I know there's people out there listening that are, I used to be one of those people. <laughs> I would tell you on your next project, start simple. Take one EQ. I don't care which one it is, stock plugin or third-party plugin, whatever your favorite EQ is, one. Take your favorite compressor, only one. Use only those two plugins for an entire mix. And I mean an entire mix from start to finish, those two plugins. And see how well you can get on with doing that. Can you get something that sounds balanced with clarity, with good separation? You should be able to. If you cannot, then you need more training on how to use EQ and compression. We could talk about that at the end of the video, or excuse me, the end of the podcast. Okay? So using too many plugins can be a problem. Limit yourself. I know we have unlimited amount of plugins that we can put on. We have un unlimited amount of plugins that we can purchase. <laughs> but using them all just because we have them all is not always a good thing. Okay? So that's tip number one. Tip number two. A lot of times I see students that are over-EQing. Let me say, what does that mean? Where, again, I'll look at a, a session and they'll say, I can't get the vocal to sit right. Again, I'm using this as an example. 
and it'll open up the session, look at the vocal track, and they have an EQ on there of some kind. And they open up that EQ, and they have all they have all crazy amounts of cuts and boosts and shelves and I mean it, it looks like I mean it's not they're not simple EQ moves it's way over EQ'd tons of boosting tons of you know just weird things happening and they're doing this on every single track because they don't understand the basic fundamentals of how to use EQ they don't understand fundamental frequencies they don't understand how EQ frequencies clash with each other from track to track in the over EQ. Here's a guideline for you. Now, again, I have to preface this by saying, like we say a lot of times, that the raw recordings, the raw tracks have to be recorded well. And again, well, I put in air quotes and well is a subjective term, but they have to be recorded halfway decent. Given that, if you are making EQ moves on any frequencies, boost or cut, more than 6 dB, then something is probably wrong. Either the track is recorded poorly or you don't have an accurate monitoring system, whether you're listening to your studio speakers or whether you're listening to it on headphones, that you are making too many cuts and boosts in a, speci in a specific track. That's a guideline. That's not to say I haven't boosted or cut things more than 6 dB from time to time. But 80% of the time, if you have a well-recorded track, and again, I'll use a lead vocal for, or I'll use, you know, a set of drum overheads, for example, where, okay, you maybe you're cutting in that four to 500 hertz range, two to three dB. Maybe you're doing a little bit of a low cut filter. Maybe you're doing a little bit of a boosting on the top end, maybe eight. 10k to bring a little bit of sparkle to the symbols and each one of those cuts and boots that i just mentioned is maybe 3 db 4 db 2 db it's not 15 db it's not a massive scoop at 400 hertz it's not a huge boost at 10k and everything sounds like nails on a chalkboard when he hits the symbols because it's too much okay so when you're eqing three to six db on any boosts and cuts is typically where you're at Anything more than that, you need to take a look at what we're dealing with. Now, if you have a really crappy recorded track, this is a different situation. But again, we're not we're not talking about that, right? We're talking about things that are recorded, like I said, you know, well. Okay. So over EQing is is can be a problem. It is a problem. Okay. Again, I do tons of mixing videos and have specific courses on EQ where I show you how to do things. And if you understand how to EQ properly, and if you understand the fundamental frequencies of instrumentation, you're going to see from mix to mix, things are very repetitive. Meaning that, you know, again, drum overheads, you're going to cut and boost typically right around the same frequencies. Kick drums, you're going to boost and cut right around the same frequencies. Lead vocals, if it's a female vocal or a male vocal, depending, you're going to boost and cut typically around the same frequencies. Okay, if you understand EQ, you'll understand that. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, so over EQing, be careful of EQing. If you open up an EQ and, there, and it's, there's boosts and cuts and there's there's 10, you know, two, three EQs on a track, you're never going to get things to sound right. Okay, so over EQing is a problem. Be careful with that. Tip number three, when you're mixing, you are listening too much in solo mode. We talk about this an awful lot, right? Where it doesn't matter if the track sounds good in solo, it matters how it sits in the context of a mix.
Now, a lot of times, a lot of you listening to this, you watched a lot of my courses. And when you see my mixing courses, you'll see that, yeah, I do solo things up so I can let you hear an example. And I will usually, 90% of the time, if I remember it, I will make mention beforehand, yes, we're listening to this in solo. We should be listening to this in the context of a mix, but I'm trying to help you learn how to tune your ears. And a lot of times for beginners, um, especially in intermediates, it is easier for them to hear things in solo than it is in the context of a mix. Why? because they haven't practiced enough yet and they haven't tuned their ear yet and that's okay. So you'll see that a lot in my courses that will do things in solo. But like I said, I'll always say, this is not the right way to do this. We should be doing this in the context of a mix. And after I show you in solo, then we'll bring back the entire mix and I'll show you how it fits into a mix. So when you're EQing things and when you're listening to a mix, you want to be listening to the full mix. You don't want to be listening to too many things in solo and you especially don't want to EQ in solo as much as humanly possible. Okay. This, every time this kind of thing comes up in one of the mixing courses, I try to make sure I point it out. Acoustic guitar is a great example where in solo... If, if, it's a, if, it's a, if it's a full band with drums, bass, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, maybe a piano, a lead vocal, and a background vocal, and it's a, an acoustic guitar that has more of a just kind of strumming chords part playing the rhythm section or the chord section of the song, that when we EQ that in solo, we may, you know, we may end up rolling off doing a low cut filter, for example, at 150, 200 hertz, depending on the guitar and how it was recorded, which in solo sounds very, very thin. It sounds like a thin acoustic guitar, but when you pop it back into the mix, it sounds like it fits because it now does not compete with the bass guitar and it doesn't compete with the electric guitar, rhythm distorted electric guitars if they happen to have those in the song. Okay, that's just one example. So using solo to check things is great. Using solo from time to time to kind of just reset your ears is great, but you want to be doing much more of your listening, EQing, compression, you know, compression or anything else that you're doing to a track in the context of the mix as much as humanly possible. Okay. Because again, it doesn't, doesn't matter what it sounds like in solo. It matters what it sounds like in the context of a mix. And again, this comes back to the basic fundamentals, as I've been saying all along throughout this podcast. Okay. So that's number three. Number four, this is a different one um, that you've probably never heard anybody say before, but I'm going to say it because this is what I kind of specialize in on my YouTube channel and, and, and in some of my training courses. And that is that you're not setting up your DAW as an analog console. And you may say, what does that mean, Dave? Well, I have courses about that. <clears throat> we talk about using third-party plugins and analog style plugins, but not setting up your DAW as an analog console and not thinking of your DAW as an analog studio. And what I mean by that is, again, it kind of comes back to what we talked about in tip number one with too many plugins. When you think of your DAW as an analog studio or an analog console, you, you immediately start to think more about limitations. Whereas in the analog world, you don't, don't have or didn't have the, the amount of choices that we have today in the digital world. And you may say, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> so for example, when you had an analog console for mixing, and we're talking about mixing, and let's say you had an SSL console that had 48 channels on it or 44 faders on it. Okay, you you couldn't when you were recording and when you were preparing that session to be mixed, you only had 44 channels, 44 physical faders on the board. You didn't have 150 tracks, you had 44. 
So that means that sometimes you would have to comp things down from several tracks to a pair of stereo tracks. For example, like a string section. You know, if you had a, a 50 piece, you know, stringed, you know, court, you know, orchestra in your stu in a studio and they were recording that, well, they wouldn't they wouldn't put that all down on, you know, 50 different faders on the on the board. They would put that they would bring that down to at a, at most, you know, eight channels when recording maybe 16 and then comp that down to a stereo pair or two stereo pairs on the board. They do a lot of comping, right? In the digital world, um, again, thinking about recording tracks, not having unlimited amount of tracks. So when you, when you limit yourself to the amount of tracks you have, like you would in an analog console, that's one way to keep the session simple and also is more effective, okay? Being digital and being able to record as many tracks as you want is great, but it's overkill a lot of times, more times than not. Also, when we talk about an analog studio, again, when you're mixing, because we're talking about mixing in this episode, when it's time to mix, you may, in an analog studio, maybe you had a pair of 1176 compressors, for example, maybe one or two Pultec EQs, maybe one or two LA-2As, maybe an LA-3A. If you were lucky, maybe a Fairchild compressor. Maybe you had one or two reverb units, and that was really it. And when you were mixing through the desk, in this case, let's say an SSL, the majority of your EQing and your compressing was being done on your SSL, which is why I use channel strips a lot. And then you would have, for example, maybe one or two 1176 compressors, and you as the mixing engineer had to choose, well, what track or two did I want to put my 1176s on? I can't put it on all 44 tracks because I only have two units, right? So when you put it on, let's say your snare drum and your lead vocal or your lead guitar, for example, then that gives that snare and that lead guitar a sense of uniqueness because they have that now those two tracks and only those two tracks have that 1176 sonic imprint on it. In the digital world, we have an 1176 plugin. We could put it on all 44 tracks. Now the uniqueness of the 1176 has gone away because you put it on everything. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's another example. Setting up your DAW like an analog studio or like an analog console. Thinking of it that way. So when you're mixing, you should say to yourself, okay, I, I'm going to allow myself two 1176s in the session maximum. One LA-2A, maximum. I'm assuming you have all these plugins. Um, maybe one reverb unit. I'm going to pick one reverb. I have 15 reverb plugins, but I'm going to pick one for this mix, and that's what I'm going to use it on. Or maybe I'm going to pick a room reverb and a plate reverb, and that's it. And I'm going to decide how I'm going to use that. But I'm going to only have that. I'm not going to have 10 different types of reverbs available to me. I only have two. Okay, again, it's about limitations. When you do that two things happen. One, you become more creative. And when you become more creative, you have a more unique mix at the end and a more familiar sounding mix because that's how analog records are made most of the time. Okay. So think about your DAW as an analog studio. Think of it that way. Think about that if you were, you know, you had a bunch of tracks that were brought in that were put on an, were put on a, uh, an analog console for mixing. And even if you don't have any channel strip plugins, that's okay. Although I highly recommend you have at least one. Highly, highly recommend that you have at least one. 
Um, which one you can get, it doesn't really matter. Go pick anything, you know, API, Neve, you know, Focusrite, SSL, whatever floats your boat, one of the Abbey Roads um, by Waves. But even if you don't have a channel strip, okay, I'm just going to use, you know, again, I'm going to have my specialty EQs and compressors. I'm going to only have, I'm only going to allow myself two 1176 style. I'm only going to allow myself one LA2A style and only one Pultec style. And then everything else is going to be my stock plugins or something like that. Okay. Thinking of it that way is going to give you that more familiar sound. It really truly is. And again, if you want to learn more about courses that I have that are more specific to this topic, we'll talk about it towards the end of the video or the end of the podcast, keep saying video. Okay. So not having a blueprint of the way you set up your DAW and just having a bunch of things randomly thrown in there and not have any kind of process or kind of method to the madness, I think is a mistake you want to try to avoid. And then the last thing, which is a little bit more of an advanced technique, but, but the last thing that, um, that is a mistake that you ought to consider using on, in some part in your mixes is automation. Not using automation is a mistake. Okay. All great mixes, most, I should say most, not all, most great mixes have some level of automation in them. Now, a lot of my beginner courses, I don't really teach the automation piece of it because if you don't understand, again, the basics of EQ and compression and some of these other things we're talking about, automation isn't going to matter. But when you get to the more advanced stuff, I teach automation a lot. And automation is really where a mix can, can really come alive. And it could be as simple as one or two tracks and certain sections of the song become louder or panning from one side to the other. It could be something very, very simple. It could be all the way up through things that are very complex where whole sections of the song are changing volume or changing EQ in certain sections of the song or changing compression levels in certain sections of the song. It's a little bit more complex, but it could be something as much as that. But I would highly recommend that you start learning about automation in a mix. And this is usually something I do at the very end of the mix. When the mix is done from an EQ, a compression point of view, a balance point of view, a clarity point of view, then I start looking for sections of the mix or things in the mix that I want to highlight or spice up. And that's where automation comes in. And again, I have some training about that we could talk about a little bit. Okay, so not, not using automation. That's another mistake you want to try to avoid. When you use automation, you're always going to, most people will start off using way too much automation <laughs> and then they learn over time to back it off and be more subtle. The other thing about automation too, is you don't want the final listener to make it so obvious. You don't want it to be super obvious, like something radically changed. You want things to kind of happen from an automation point of view, which is subtle, but it keeps the, uh, the listener interested. Okay. So not using automation. So those are five things. So in summary, using too many plugins, number one, over EQing or not properly EQing. Number two, listening too much in solo and not more in the context of the mix. When you're doing things like EQ and compression, that's tip number three, tip number four, not thinking of your DAW as an analog studio, analog console, creating limitations for yourself in that way will give you a more familiar and in my opinion, a more consistent mix. And then lastly, tip number five, not using any automation at all, keeping away from it. Um, adding automation to your mix will help your mix come alive and not using it is a mistake. So those are five tips that you can use amongst all the other tips that I've given you over the years and over the past episodes in this podcast. So I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful to you in some way. I encourage you to use all of these things in your next mixing project. Now, as I said at the beginning, 
I want to give you a couple of free gifts. So if this is your first podcast that you're listening to or the first time you've stumbled across Home Recording Made Easy, welcome to the family. I want to give you a free gift. So if you go out to homerecordingmadeeasy.com, we're talking about mixing in this episode. I want to give you a free mixing course. It's right on the homepage, big orange button at the top. You can't miss it. Get your free mixing course today. It's worth about 50 bucks and you can use some of these tips that I'm giving you in that course so you can mix a song along with me and um, and start to uh, implore some of these uh, some of these tips that I'm giving you into that mix so get your free mixing course and also while you're there if you want to check out some of the other courses that I've been kind of alluding to in this podcast things like using setting up your DAW as an analog studio the great course for you there would be mixing with analog style plugins made easy that's mixing with analog style plugins made easy. Check it out on the training course page. That's all about third-party plugins, how to set up your DAW like an analog studio. Go check out that course. We also talked about over-EQing, doing things in solo like compression when you should be doing them in the context of the mix. But if you don't understand the basic fundamentals of EQ and compression and how to be most effective, you want to check out courses like EQ made easy, compression made easy, okay? Those kinds of things. If you want to check out those courses, and there's many, many more on the website, check them out. I want to give you a 30% discount. If you use the coupon code PODCAST30 at checkout, you could take 30% off any of the courses I just mentioned or any of the courses on my website for that matter. So go to Home Recording Made Easy, get your free mixing course, use PODCAST30 to take 30% off and get yourself some training today. So until the next episode, my name's been Dave with HomeRecordingMadeEasy.com. Thank you so much again for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, leave a five-star review. And again, if there's a topic you want me to cover on a future episode, just send me an email, info at homerecordingmadeeasy.com. And I will see you, speak to you, and talk to you next week. Take care, everybody.